Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, Denying the Father and the Son, the Blasphemy of the Trinitarian Doctrine. Reg. Can't tell you how much ribbing I've been getting here recently about all my titles, but that's another story. I'm just glad that we didn't live 300 years or so ago, because 300 years ago or so ago, what I'm about to present to you would have been considered blasphemy against the Roman Catholic Church, and for which I would have been uh, very succinctly burned at the stake. So I'm committing high heresy against the Catholic Church here today. Just let you know that to begin with, okay? Uh, this is denying the Father and the Son. It is to expose, if I will, all of the um, problems that we have with the Trinitarian doctrine, okay? So let's begin, all right? These are the passages. This is my key passage. 1 John 2, verses uh, 22 and 23. Who is a liar but he that denieth Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And 23, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledged the Son hath the Father also. All right, when John wrote these words, he was primarily concerned about those who were denying the divinity of Christ, a heresy of the Catholic Church called Arianism. But these are the God-inspired words that reach much further than just that one-time event. These are words that reach beyond that issue that was facing John and become very poignant for um, the implications for us today. These two verses actually comprise, if you will, a logical proposition. It's called a negation of the conjunction, and I fear that many may not realize the fallout of this apparently simple statement. So, let's explore what does it mean to deny the Father and the Son. Okay, as the opposite of to affirm, um, as the opposite of to affirm, to deny means essentially it's a negation. Okay, on the first reading, one might think that uh, in, in order to deny the Father and the Son, that you have to deny both beings. But the denial that John is talking about here is a unit, so that to deny either one part or the other part of that unit is the same as denying the whole thing. Thus, there are four possible ways that we can be guilty of denying the Father and the Son. This is logic now. I didn't want to take you guys back to class, but you know. All right. The logical proposition that denying the Father and the Son can occur in any one of four ways. Accept the Father, but deny the Son. Accept the Son, but deny the Father. Deny the Father and deny the Son. Or to deny the divine, divine dyad, that is the union of the Father and the Son. Four different ways that we can deny the Father and the Son. Did you realize that? Four different ways that can happen? Okay. All right. Now, the, fir the first one, very simple. We accept the Father, but deny the divinity of Jesus. This is a strictly mon monotheistic view. Okay. Accept the Father, but deny the divinity of Jesus. That's one way. This is, again, called Arianism in uh, ancient texts. God is God alone and indivisible. That's the idea behind this. Jesus is a being created by God, but inferior to him. This is the key proposition that makes this monotheism 
and uh, an attempt to deny the Father and the Son. Denies Jesus is God, instead, but is an, a created being instead. Some even say he's an angelic being. Or some even say he's not an angel or created being at all, that he was just an ordinary man. He's a prophet, a good man, but certainly not Messiah. In the strict monotheistic view, this was a principle, the main problem that John was facing, as I said, denying the divinity of Jesus, later known as Arianism. Roman Catholicism tried to address the Christology issues at the Council of Nicaea, out of which emerged the doctrine of the mystery of the Trinity. Those uh, councils occurred in 325 and 345 AD, if I got my dates right on those. Uh, unfortunately, um, out of those emerged a number of other things. This is where the con uh, Quarto Deciman controversy was established. The, um, uh, they were against, they established that Sunday would be the first day of the week in the Lord's Day, and uh, they were against the Sabbath, uh, Judaizing, as they called it, on the Sabbath, etc. Okay, one can deny the Father or the Son, uh, or, let's see. One can deny the Son, but accept the Father. That's the other op option that we have. This, one, this view is a little bit different. This is the ecumenical view. Come on. There we go. Okay, before I get to that. Um, any fool and his dog can know that God is the divine creature. Any rational mind can know that there is a creator God. We've gone through the privileged planet as an illustration of that before. We've gone through the mystery of the origin of life. We've gone through, there's a couple of new books that are new videos that I want to show you if you're not familiar with them already. This one is on the metamorphosis that has to do with the wonderful, amazing sort of con uh, transformation that goes on between the caterpillar and the um, the butterfly, the monarch butterfly, and all the ch changes that take place, how that could not possibly have happened by evolution, among other things. This one is the origin of life, and uh, basically it's information coding, information uh, science, as, it, as it's called, and this is the wonders of the heavens and things. So, as the psalmist said, when I consider the works of the, of the when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people are his, are his glory, see his glory. This is, this is the idea of the monotheism. Monotheism is easy to understand. God is the creator, the one person, but it takes an act of faith to accept Jesus, and that becomes the ecumenical view. Okay, this is... These are the people who want to accept the forgiving, loving, and merciful Jesus, but at the same time reject the harsh, authoritarian God of the Old Testament. Now, John asserts that this position is untenable. If we go back to the um, second verse, the verse 23, you would see that. For if you accept the Son, the very existence of a Son implies the existence of a Father. All right, so the second position is uh, untenable, as it says. All right, however, there are several that uh, try to do this, who try to uh, or attempt to do so. Unfortunately, we see such an attempt today among those who wish to deny the fatherhood of God by denying the virgin birth of Jesus. That's one way. Some people 
want to accept the wimpy Christ that has been perpetuated uh, by Catholicism and reject the Christ of the Old Testament, never realizing that the God of the Old Testament was the in, non-incorporeal form of Jesus Christ that later became the real the Christ of the New Testament. So it's really interesting to note that the, the Father was always, if you will, behind the scenes, that the God of the Old Testament was Jesus Christ in his non-corporeal form, and that they were interacting at that time with Jesus in the same way, just not, not in, the, in the physical form. Okay, and finally, this, with Father's Day coming up here in a couple of weeks or so, uh, it's significant to note that others symbolically deny the Father by denying or rejecting or abdicating the role of the human father in the family. I don't know if you realize it or not, but today the Father is under attack in the society. And that attack against the Father is an indirect attack against our Heavenly Father in the same way. Next point of view is the atheistic or pagan view. This is to deny the Father and deny the Son. We've denied the Father, but accepted the Son. We accepted the Son, but denied the Father. And now denying the Father and denying the Son. All right, this is the view of the evolutionist, uh, the atheistic scientists, and others who assert that there is no God. They're also the view of the pagan religions that worship a plethora of other gods and forces of nature. So you either have people who worship, worship no God at all, or people who worship a whole pantheon of gods. But neither one of those views are right. We should worship just the Father and the Son. Okay? Come on. Only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and there is none in them that doeth good. Psalm, this has been so important, as it was in the Psalms twice. Psalms 14.1 and Psalm 53.1. Here's the Trinitarian view. Trinitarian view is a little different. Okay, uh, this one, several different ways. They can deny the Father and the Son as a unit, strictly adhering to the holy, uh, by admitting to this holy duo extraneous elements. This is the most subtle of all of the denials, for it does not deny the divinity of the Father, nor does it deny the divinity of Christ. What it does deny is that it's they're the only two beings who are both divine and eternal. Rather, it admits to the Holy Family as objects of worship, entities that are not divine or are not sentient or not divine. The doctrine of the Trinity is the denial of the Father and Son as a unit by admitting the Holy Spirit to the dyad as a person. And that's important, as, as a person. Okay? Continuing. Worshiping Mary as mother of God or uh, is denying the Father and Son as an, a unit by elevating the non-existent immortal souls. And you can also worship dead saints, I guess, as well. Uh, as, uh, by elevating her non-existent or their non-existent immortal souls uh, to, of human beings as intercessors of Christ. Uh, here, these are denials that John did not have to deface because it did not arrive until the second century, the end of the second century. Yet today, they have become so much a part of Western civilization and Western Christian dogma that most people do not even recognize them as the denials of the Father and Son that they are. Here is a, a statement of the Trinitarian doctrine from, from an online source. 
It says, Trinitarianism is the Christian doctrine that God, although being one, exists in three different persons called hypostases, uh, known collectively as the Holy Trinity. Trinitarianism was formally defined in the 4th century. Notice that's 4th century. 300 years or more after the last apostle had died. 4th century ecumenical councils, those are the councils in Nicaea, that adopted the notion of the uh, Holy Trinity as an article of faith uh, in reaction to certain ideas such as Arianism regarding the nature of the Trinity and the nature of Christ within it, which are hence declared heretical. Adherents of this doctrine believe that it was taught by Jesus Christ and the first apostles and were foreshadowed in the Old Testament, while its detractors, that's us, believe that it was invented in the 4th century. That it was invented during the 4th century. Okay. By the way, the Trinitarian doctrine, since it was, came out of the councils of Nicaea, it's part of the Nicene Creed. You may have heard of that. Many Trinitarian Christians believe... Many Trinitarian Christians believe the Orthodox uh, doctrine of the Trinity is so central to the Christian faith that to deny it is to reject the Christian faith entirely. They accordingly consider non-Trinitarian, that's us, or anti-Trinitarian group to be non-Christian, even though such groups identify themselves as Christians. The nature of this dispute usually resolves around the issues of the deity of Christ, as I said, whether he was a created being or an angelic being or actually uh, God with God um, at that time. Whether belief in such a non-divine Jesus is sufficient for salvation, it also concerns what I'm talking about today as of the pers personhood of the, divine, of the Holy Spirit. Okay, some scholars, mostly, most notably Alexander Hislop, that name ring a bell? Should is a major contributor to a lot of our ideas. Uh, he defended the idea that uh, Trinity was of pagan origin and viewed Trinitarianism as a contamination of the Christian faith. Most of his ideas are expressed in the book that we were very familiar with, The Two Babylons. That, uh, that said, the vast majority of theologians, both ancient and modern, still affirm the uh, doctrine of the Trinity as, has traditionally been a central tenet in the Christian faith. Today, all mainstream Christian denominations are Trinitarian. I guess that means we're not mainstream, huh? Imagine that. Okay. So, my question is, why would anyone want to entertain, let alone defend, such a convoluted, confusing, irrational doctrine as the Trinity? Especially when it is not scriptural at all. It defies common sense. How can something be, at one and the same time, one being and three different beings at the same time? It doesn't make sense. And God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all of his churches. Okay. So, let's see. It is not scriptural. In fact, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned together in only one passage in the King James Version of the Bible. It's 1 John 5, 7, 8. And it turns out to be spurious. Uh, spurious means it's erroneous. It wasn't in the original text. It was erroneously copied, probably from a marginal note, into the text of the Bible during, look, the 16th century. 1,500 years after the last apostle had died. John certainly did not 
write it as the author. Okay, here's the passage. For there are three that bear record. Now, this, the part in yellow is the spurious text. Uh, so I'm going to read the whole thing first with the spurious text in it and then show what it sounds like without it. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, and these three are one, and these three are... And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. What's the problem? This text was added. It does not appear in the original te Greek text. It does not appear in the Latin Vulgate. It does not appear in any text prior to the 16th century. It was added. It, the concept of a trinity did not even show up until the end of the second century. So that's why we've got a problem. Now, without this spurious text, look what, how it reads. For there are three that bear record, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. That makes perfect sense. What's more, it advances the idea that um, um, John was trying to um, promote here. And I'm going to read a passage now from Albert Burns. I'm going to leave this up here so you can uh, follow a look at it as we go through here. This is a passage from Albert Barnes' commentary. If the disputed passage, therefore, be omitted as spurious, the whole passage will read, For there are three that bear record, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. The reasons which seem to, to me to prove that the passage included the, in, in the brackets, or in yellow up here, uh, is spurious and should not be considered part of the original writing, or brief, briefly are the following. It is missing in all of the earlier Greek manuscripts, for it is found in no Greek manuscript written before the 6th century. Indeed, it is found in only two Greek manuscripts of any age at all. One is the Codex uh, Montfortanius, or Britannicus, written in the beginning of the 16th century, and the other is the Codex Ravinius, which is a mere transcript of the text taken partly from the third edition of Stephen's New Testament and partly from the Complutus But it is uh, incredible, that means not with, not with no credence, that a genuine passage of the New Testament should be missing from all of the early Greek manuscripts. Part two, it is missing in, uh, in the earliest versions and indeed in part from the in uh, part of the versions of the New Testament that have been made in all the in all former times, it is wanting in both the Syriatic versions, one of which was made in the first century, and in the Coptic, Coptic, the Armenian, the Slavonic, the Ethiopian, and the Arabian, missing from all of those different versions. Part three: It is never quoted by the Greek fathers in their controversies over the doctrine of the Trinity, a passage that would have would be so much in point and which uh, could not have failed to be quoted if it were genuine. It is not referred to by the Latin fathers until the time of Virgilius at the end of the 5th century. If the passage were believed to be genuine, nay, if it were known at all to be in existence, to have, uh, to have any probability in its favor, it would be incredible that all the controversies that occurred in regard to the divine nature and in, in in all the efforts to define the nature of the, of the Trinity, that this passage could never have been referred to. It never was, for it was, must be plain to anyone that examines the subject with any unbiased mind that the passages are all relied upon to prove the quoted by um, uh, Anastasius, uh, Augustine, etc., were not taken from this place 
but are such that they would have been made if they would have been acquainted with the passage and would, would have designed to quote it. Um, the, part four. The argument against the passage from external proof is confirmed by the internal evidence. Now that means within the text itself. Which uh, makes it morally certain not to be genuine. The connection does not de demand it. First, the connection does not demand it. It does not contribute to advance what the apostle is saying, but breaks the thread of the argument entirely. He is speaking of certain things that bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, certain things which will be uh, well known to those to whom he was writing, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And how does it contribute to strengthen the force of this to say that in heaven there are three that bear witness, three that are not before referred to and having no connection with the matter under consideration. Second, the language that is in use here is not language that John would use. And he does indeed elsewhere refer to the term logos or word, but he does never refer to it in the form the Father and the Word. He never correlates the Father and the Word, those two terms, the Father and logos, the Word. They're never mentioned together. The word that he uses is the Son. Uh, is a term that is correlative to the Father in, in every other place as used with, by John as well as by any of the other sacred writers. Um, let's see. Without the, uh, part C. Without this passage, the sense of the argument is clear and appropriate. There are three way, three, says John, that bear witness that Jesus is the Messiah. They're referred to in 1 John 5, 6, and in immediate connection with this in the argument, 1 John 5, 8, it is uh, affirmed that their testimony goes to one point, and it is harmonious. To say that there are other witnesses elsewhere, to say that they are one, contributes nothing to, the, uh, to illustrate the nature of the testimony of these three, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And the internal sense of the passage, therefore, furnishes little evidence of the genuineness of the external proof. Okay, that's enough. I, I won't, don't want to dwell too much. But even the authorities, the, the experts, the commentary, will acknowledge that this text is spurious. Okay? Now, proving a negative is very, very difficult. It's almost impossible to prove a negative. But we can cast some doubt on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Cast some doubt here. I like casting doubt. A lot easier to sling than mud. Uh, uh, it's a short study in the salutation and introduction. How many of you have ever noticed the salutations of the Apostle Paul to the churches? I'm going to go through these very, very quickly. Okay? Uh, not only the Apostle Paul, but also uh, the other apostles as well. The introductory, the greeting phrase. What we may skip over is that, how you doing, friends? Uh, has something more to it than this. I'm going to just run through these very quickly. I've got the highlighted portion I want you to uh, pay attention to in red. Okay, here's the first passage. This is from Romans. Okay, and I won't read through the whole thing, but here, right here. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, no mention of the Holy Spirit. How about the next one? This one is 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Again, notice here, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from Jesus Christ. No mention of the Spirit. Here, 2 Corinthians, grace be to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comforts. No mention of the Spirit. How about the next one? This is Galatians and Ephesians. Um, again, from God our Father, and grace be unto you, from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of our Father. Uh, back up here, let's pick up. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be to God, the, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Hmm. Seeing a pattern yet? Philippians, um, grace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Colossians, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God our Father, uh, uh, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians, let's see. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning to sound like a refrain, isn't it? Okay. Uh, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, from Timothy, uh, let's see, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, and from Jesus Christ our Lord. Slightly different wording, it tripped me up there a bit. Okay, um, let's see, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From Philemon. From even Peter. And now Peter does make reference to the Spirit in here as well, but it's not in the sense of a person. Um, let's see. Where am I? Oh, here. Whoops. Back up. There we go. Hit the wrong button. All right, um, grace unto you be, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten unto us a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, etc., etc. Okay, uh, Second Peter, uh, here, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of, our God, uh, of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his divine power. There's a possible reference to the Spirit, but maybe not. Um, here's 1 John 1, 3. Uh, that we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Um, next one, this is Second John. Grace be w with you and mercy and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and in love. Okay, here's James. James, I like James. James is direct. Uh, he doesn't waste time with all this uh, high, uh, high levels of speech. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting, I like James. Jude, a servant of the Jesus of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, that are them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and are called. Mercy to you and peace and love be multiplied. Okay. Hmm. So what is the Holy Spirit? Um, before I go on that, nobody really knows. 
Nobody really knows. This is an intangible thing that we can't get our hands around, really speaking. So, at best, what we know is that God and the incorporeal Jesus are made of it. And that it emanates from this divine dyad as some kind of force or power. So that we use metaphors, one of which is personification, in an attempt to describe its properties. Now, a question you might ask, why is it so important that the Holy Spirit is never mentioned in of Paul and others. Why is that important? Because you extend greetings from a person. You don't extend greetings from a power. You extend greetings from a person. The fact that the Holy Spirit was never mentioned as having greetings extended from him strongly suggests not a person, but a power instead. Or something else. We don't really know what it is. Okay, here's what we know. All right. Uh, first, we'll, let's define what a metaphor is, because some of you may need to go back to literary, uh, to English, and find out what that is. Metaphor or simile is an analogy. It's a literary teaching device that's used to shed light on some unknown concept or thing by comparing it to things that are known. The unknown object is not the same as a reference of the metaphor, but it shares some of the properties with the reference. By compiling many metaphors about the same unknown object, we can come to some understanding of what the object is and how it operates. Okay, so here's what we know, or some of what we know. The Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament and worked through prophets and priests and kings. Many con uh, Mary conceived uh, Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit. Now this presents a real problem for the Trinitarians. Because you see, if Mary was conceived by uh, if Mary conceived Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit, that means the Holy Spirit is the Father of Jesus, not the Father. And that's a real problem in, in terms of, of um, the Christology. The Holy Spirit is like the seed of God in that it combines with our human spirit to create a new creature in Christ. The Holy Spirit can manifest itself in various forms, including but not limited to fire, wind, rain, water, oil, a small, still small voice, and of course a human being. Properties of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got uh, all of these scriptural references here. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to make this available to you if you want to go through and do your own research on here. Here are the different kinds of things that we can find out. Okay, first, it is described. Uh, let's see. All right, is, here's some of the, the properties of the Spirit. It is personified as a teacher as a counselor or a messenger of guide, receiving or transmitting a message from God, as a comforter to give us some kind of solace in times of need, as a witness, uh, uh, providing testimony. We know that like a human being, it dwells in us. We know that like a warrior, it does battle for us. We know that it can be vexed, it can be tempted, it can be lied to, grieved, or resisted. But interestingly enough, nowhere in there do we find that it has volition. In most sentence structures, the, whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it is not listed as an agent, but it's rather as something that's acted upon. It's often as the object of a preposition or a direct object. Okay. Um, properties of the non-Holy Spirit that are non-person qualities. Now this causes problems because if it were a person, 
then how's it going to be, how it is it that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit? Is, can you fill up someone with a person? That doesn't make real good sense. Um, we are filled with the Holy Spirit like a liquid. It is poured out like a liquid. It falls upon us or is placed upon us, something like a mantle of a power or authority. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit like oil. Uh, it lights or rests upon us uh, like a bird. By the way, you all were familiar with the passage uh, of the three that I've got up here as well. There we go. It lights upon us uh, like a bird. Um, Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, Luke 3.22. Remember the passage when Jesus is baptized that they saw the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. It never says it was a dove. It says it's like a dove. And they're floating down in that some way. Um, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We mentioned that earlier. We're all baptized with, by, or in the Holy Spirit. It is manifested as fire, tongues of fire, or as uh, in Acts 2-3. Or in, um, back in Exodus, it's like the fiery pillar at, at, that guarded the children of Israel at night. And in 1 Thessalonians 5-19, we find that it can be quenched. Uh, so again, that's a metaphor of fire. It's manifested as wind or breath. Everywhere from God breathed the breath of life in the, uh, Adam and he became a living soul all the way through the rushing mighty wind of Acts 2-2. Okay. Uh, here's some other characteristics. The Holy Spirit can be put within us as in Ezekiel. Uh, remember the Valley of Dry Bones, uh, uh, chapter 37 of Ezekiel, when the Spirit is put within them. It can be used as ink to write upon our hearts, as in uh, 1 Corinthians, instead of tablets of stone written on the, uh, the, the, the tablets of our heart. It is ubiquitous everywhere. Psalm 139 says, basically, where can I go that your Spirit cannot find me? It gives access to the Father. It is the earnest money of our inheritance. It quickens or renews us. It seals us. It unifies us. It sanctifies us. These are not the characteristics of a person. These are characteristics of a power of some form. Here's some other characteristics of the, of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit produces fruit, Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. It can be tasted in Hebrews 6, 4. Um, it empowers us. It is given as a free gift. Do you give a person as a free gift? I don't think so. It can be straightened. And here the word straightened means narrowed or constrained or constricted. It can, and here's the most frightening thing. It can be taken away. It can be taken away. So, again I ask, what is the Holy Spirit? While several of the functions of the Holy Spirit are best described in anthropomorphic man-like terms, uh, many others cannot be so des described. It makes no sense, for example, to say that we can be poured out or can be filled with or can, can quench a human being. So the notion of a Holy Trinity as a person, as a divine being with sentience and volition, is absurd. Rather, my best classification of the Holy Spirit is that it is some kind of power or force that emanates from the divine dyad and it permeates the multiverse. From its properties, it has both the characteristics of substance and of energy. The Holy Spirit that we are given is more than just our conscience. I can't read that. 
can't read that far away. Okay. It's more than just our conscience. It is the peace of God himself. And it's given to us as earnest of our inheritance. It is our connection to the Father that he may identify his children. Trinitarians perpetuate, perpetuate a great lie when they uh, restrict the Holy Being, the Holy Spirit, to a single entity. Why it matters. Why it matters. Our salvation depends upon acknowledging the right Savior. If we do not acknowledge him, then he will not acknowledge us. Part of that acknowledgement includes our affirming precisely that unit that is the current Holy Family. No more, no less. To do otherwise is tantamount to blasphemy. It is not only blasphemy, it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, for it attempts to limit the power of God to a single entity. I pity the fool that wrote that passage into the Holy Scriptures, because we know what happens to any who add one jot or one tittle to any of the Holy Scriptures. 